Previously on There There. And then they in turn made similar sounds and clearly they were communicating with their plan of attack so that it was coordinated. And then they moved in slowly with uniformity of sound. I leaned against a container waiting for them, wondering what I could do to resist them or fight them off, with nothing but my hands. My hands that held neatly manicured nails against their freshly honed claws. I felt the first one prod my foot, gently, this time with curiosity, possibly to see what I would do. Would I defend? Could I defend? Unfortunately, I quickly realized my assumption was incorrect. It wasn't curiosity. It was distraction as I felt the claw slice up my ear swiftly before retreating. I attempted to swat at the source, but it was gone before I could make contact. And then there was silence, with the exception of my breathing, which had now increased significantly. I reached for my ear and felt the warm blood openly pouring from the wound. How would their next attack appear? And what could I do to protect myself? But before the next attack was coordinated, I heard another sound from the back of the container. It was a new sound, a heavier sound, and I could hear the creature sniff the air before they scurried away from me, rapidly to the rear of the container, as if they were scrambling to get back into their boxes. It was another creature, but this creature did not scurry, nor did it sharpen its claws against the corrugated steel. It was deliberate, intentionally taking its time to move toward me, not out of caution or even arrogance. It moved because it wanted to move, like I was insignificant and therefore not a threat. And with each movement, I had almost forgotten the sound because of the foreign movements that I had just encountered, and so it didn't register at first, but then it became obvious. Step after step after torturously slow step in pairs, bipedal and therefore human. One intentionally heavy footstep after another. And I began to pound the door louder to drown out the sound of the footsteps. But no matter how I pounded, the steps got louder as they got nearer. And then they stopped. And when I stopped pounding, I heard your voice. I'm back. It's just the two of us, if you don't count my friends. Lucky for you, I arrived when I did. It's an understatement to say you owe me your life. Let's talk about that. Your life, my life, and the intersection of the twine. You're listening to There There. Episode 456, Pick Up Sticks. It was a sound that brought me to, the pounding that seemed to emanate from my head and radiate in all directions. My head was a source of the pounding until it wasn't. Another source revealed itself until I could hear the bars to the door of the container being turned in their footings. The metal grinding, screeching, echoed throughout the container, throughout my bones. It was slow and laborious and therefore long-lasting, and that is what woke me from my slumber. And to my surprise, I wasn't in any stage of decomposition, and I even thought that I was still in the country. When the door opened, the light flooded the container until my pupils closed in fear of the burn, but it was too late. Scorched earth they became, and objects were reduced to yellow grays moving across the scorched earth. I tried to make sense of it. As the yellow grays rushed toward me, smaller grays scrambled as they made their exit at the top of the container, unbeknownst to all but me. They were even more indefinite in the light than they were in the blackness. Would they be back for me, like him? The men didn't see the creatures that I had spent the last few hours with. How long was it? Wasn't it just a few hours? 
To the men, I was their immediate concern, or legally their immediate liability, to see if I was still alive or if they needed to inform my next of kin and wait for the wrongful death suit that would follow. How long was I really in here? With no light and no sense of time, it could have been an hour or several or a day, and I shuddered at the thought of maybe even several. Was I hungry? Was I thirsty? That might give an insight as to how much time had elapsed, but I found myself not either. Would they be back for me, like him? It was him. He was in here, wasn't he? But how did he get in? I would have seen him enter. I would have heard him enter, unless he was already in here when I opened the door. And that's why Cass didn't want me to check this one. Cass and Noah. How were they connected? Were they pairs like me and my other? What did he want with me? What did he say? I owed him my life, he said. The intersection of the twine. He said twine and not twain, which would have made more sense. And then I lost consciousness, and when I awoke, he was gone. What else did he have to say to me? But the words would not come. After the fiasco and much relief, they took me to the infirmary, and someone with big tattooed forearms took care of me. He took a mylar blanket and pulled it tightly over me, essentially tucking me in like my absent father meant to do. It seemed like an odd detail, but I really only saw the forearms as he tended to me. I couldn't even make out the detail of the tattoo. A heart, a balloon, a ship, black ink and faded over time so that parts were more bluish gray than black. Distinguishing blacks and grays meant that my sight was coming back. Beyond the arms and the tattoo, I didn't see a face or even much of a voice. When he was gone, I looked around to get my bearings and speed up the recovery of my eyes. It was dark mainly, but not because of my eyes. There was only a strip of fluorescent lights hanging from two chains that seemed to sway just a bit. The effect created moving pockets of light and dark in the infirmary, more like a converted storage room. It was makeshift with a few army-issued cots, all empty except for the one that I occupied. I continued to scan the room until I reached the side nearest the door, and that's when I saw him. He was there all the time, but I didn't notice. I didn't even notice the loudest roar of a snore coming from him. He had the look of exhaustion, even beyond what I felt. How long was he here? How long was I here in this room? The room was dark, and the windows were sealed with cardboard, so I couldn't even determine if it was day or night outside. He sat in deep slumber, perhaps from looking for me all night long. Did this prove that it wasn't intentional? Did this prove that it wasn't a fraternity prank to scare me off or as a rite of passage? I closed my eyes and when I opened them, he was awake. Again, time was elusive. Cass was apologetic and I said nothing. Nothing about the contents of the container or the manifest being different than the container contents. And when I was interviewed by someone in a suit, I told him nothing out of the ordinary and that it was my fault and not Cass's. I had not followed orders and that I was sorry. Cass looked thankful at the thoughtfulness of my words and even apologetic. He looked as if any moment he was going to speak up and take responsibility, but he didn't. And he tried to hide his cowardice, but I could see it in his face. Lack of eye contact, head tilted slightly downward, were always telltale hallmarks of guilt and shame. The man in the suit said when I was well enough, I could leave. In the end of it all, I didn't get into trouble. In fact, the man in the suit and Cass were quickly joined by other men beginning their shift. One of the guys said that no one would be able to last that long without cracking. I must have already been crazy or inhuman or some sort of superhero. They had seen it once before. Someone had been locked in a container, and when they found them, he had slit his throat. No one can last in that setting. 
The man was ready to tell the entirety of the story, but both the man in the suit and Cass looked at him, and he responded in kind with silence. I thought I would be fired, but instead I was given a promotion. He said I had earned my keep, but I felt maybe it was his way of keeping me quiet, like maybe they thought I would sue or file a worker's comp claim. As I began to disperse and exit, my caregiver, the one who took me in, went toward the door and stood before a sign. Safety first. We've been accident-free for 405 days. He took a dry erase marker and looked at the board, then placed it down unused and exited the room, leaving the tally intact. Wasn't Mr. Warris an accident? Technically, his death occurred before his shift started, or maybe since it was a heart attack, it wasn't an accident. They must have talked about it, and the man in the suit couldn't let Mr. Warris' misfortune ruin morale. He also must have had a conversation about my situation with other men in suits. Wasn't this an accident? And if so, why didn't they reset the board? If this wasn't ruled an accident, does that mean it was on purpose? And doesn't that condemn Cass as my imprisoner? But he seemed so remorseful and riddled with guilt. Not the kind of guilt one feels when being caught. He was practically in tears and told me if I needed anything just to ask and he would take care of it. How does one define an accident? As previously mentioned, not as an antonym for on purpose. As in an injury. Was I injured? I guess the answer to that might be no. I was locked in there, I had no water or food for however long I was in there, but there was no physical injury, just possibly mental and emotional. I lifted my hand to my ear and felt the wound that had already begun to scab over. This was an injury, wasn't it? And wasn't I in the job when it happened? Had they noticed, or was my hair covering it? Maybe they would reset the number when I went back to work the next day. I lied on the cot and the mind started doing its thing, and I knew that I would be here comatose with thinking the thoughts, and I couldn't let that start. Not here. If that started, I would be stuck, much like I was in that container. And so with the mylar blanket wrapped tightly around me, I left. I walked down the street unfocused, and before I realized it, I was at work, not even knowing what time of day it was. It was my brain telling me not to go home. Home was a trap, and so it brought me here. I didn't have any meetings scheduled. I could just hide out of my office. I could sneak in and go to my office and close the blinds and lock the door and hide behind my computer until it was time to go home, and then I could return to the docks. I could have a snack for lunch. I always kept fig bars or blueberry bars on my desk, and I always had bottles of water and a single-use coffee maker, enough to get by. I could grab more coffee and a sandwich from the coffee shop on my way to the docks. It didn't take long for my boss to enter my office. I'm sure word spread immediately, and I'm surprised he didn't enter with HR or building security. His face said it all, taking one look at me still wrapped in the Mylar blanket. The conversation went something like this. You can't show up to work like that. Did I feel okay? I told him that I deliberately went to work like this because I was working on a social experiment. And maybe it was a social experiment. I wanted to know if people would treat me differently based on the way I looked, the way I smelled. And not just people I knew, but also people I didn't know. Could they get past the way I look and judge me by my words and actions and thoughts and opinions? I told him I was doing research and maybe I would write a paper for the trade journal when it was done. The hypothesis question of, was I not the same person no matter how I was dressed? The social hypocrisy. You have to look the part. He looked like he was seriously considering this. He knew that if one of us was published, it would mean a serious boost in clients and therefore revenue. I need to know what you're doing before you do it, he said. Go home, do a write-up, and let me get approval from upstairs, and if they say okay, I'll say okay, but go home for now, and please, I beg you, take a shower. 
and then he softened. Look, he said, I know you're going through some tough times, and I know you're out of sick days and vacation days. Grab your laptop and go home. Do some emails and write up the social experiment, which you're going to email me, and call it a day. He waited, and he was going to wait until I left. In fact, he walked me out of the building. The blanket must have had magical properties. I ended up at the door of my apartment building, and I had no recollection of how I got there. I used a key to enter the building and pressed a button for the elevator, a button that had been pressed so many times that the paint had eroded from it so that all that was left was the indentation of an up arrow and a down arrow. When I entered, I pressed the number two because I thought that I should go to the second floor, but as soon as I pressed it, I quickly pushed the five button several times because I realized that I lived on the fifth floor. And as soon as the door closed, I realized my second mistake, or was it my third? And I frantically pressed the four button because I most certainly did live on the fourth floor, I think. The elevator door opened on the second floor to no one. Once the door closed, I saw a muted, dull reflection of myself. And I also became frantically aware that I was stuck in another container and my heart started racing and I struggled to breathe. I thought that I should really go see a doctor and get some medication to help with my anxiety, but that thought really didn't help with my present condition. I took out my phone and I sent a text to myself, make an appointment and get meds. As soon as I hit send, I received the message. It was from me, of course, make an appointment and get meds. When the elevator reached the fourth floor, someone entered, someone that I hadn't seen before. He waited to see if I was exiting, but I stood and he hesitantly entered. He was dressed in blue faded jeans, a green button-down shirt, and a brown sport coat. As he moved near me to push the ground floor button, I smelled his cologne that overwhelmed me for a moment. I'm not sure why he would want to take the elevator up one floor just to go back down, but to each his own. I looked straight ahead, but I sensed he was looking at me, and I confirmed my suspicion as I looked at the matte dull reflection on the elevator door. He was looking at me, ever so subtly, but I could see his head move toward me, and I can hear an audible sniff and then he took a step or two to retreat into the corner of the elevator, away from my humanness, and not even the Mylar blanket could suffocate my humanness right now. We all have a unique scent, pheromones, a unique chemical signature that sends a message to all those around us. It says you should be attracted to me, or you should stay the F away because I may hurt you, and this guy knew he needed to stay away from me, as far as possible in this limited, confined space. I inhaled deeply, but not as noticeably as he did, and I smelled what he was smelling. It was me. I did not smell good. It was a mixture of body odor coupled with maybe urine and even feces. How long was I in that container, and how could I not notice the smell? Was it the blanket smothering the smell, or just that I was used to it already? No wonder why my boss could barely look at me when he spoke in my office, and then he opened my window. I didn't make the connection. Now this poor sap had to endure it. When we reached the fifth floor, he expected me to get out, but I quickly pushed the four button, followed quickly by the button to close the door. At least it was only for a few more moments for him before I reached my floor. But a part of me wanted to stay with him so that he could endure the stench, and when the door opened at the fourth floor, I stayed in the elevator. He asked if this was my floor, but I told him I forgot to check my mail. And as the door closed, I could hear him let out an audible sigh, and then we began the descent for four floors. His breathing became steady and controlled. Quick inhale, hold it in as long as he could as the elevator descended. When it arrived, the door opened and he exited quickly. I didn't exit though. I just pushed my floor button, the floor button because I was certain I lived on the fourth floor and rode back up. A smile overcame my face. This idea entertained me 
and I almost decided to stay in the elevator and just take trips up and down for the remainder of the day just to catch the reaction of the people getting on and off. This would provide entertainment for at least a few hours, and this sounded like a better idea than going back to my apartment. Once I was there, I would just stay up all night thinking. How long would it take for someone to call the building manager, and how long would it take for him to call the police? Could this be part of my experiment? The experiment that I told my boss that I was going to write up and send to him before the end of the day? I thought better of it, but when the elevator reached my floor, I did an exit. Instead, I pressed the top floor and wrote the elevator up. I had to make this elevator my box, not unlike the box that I had spent the last day or so in, but this one was safe and it was designed to be temporary. In, up, out. In, down, out. There was nothing in here trying to hurt me. My eyes focused on my reflection and saw the dulled image once again, my features unrecognizable, anonymous. A blur of a human, nothing more, nothing less. But when the door of the elevator opened, I could swear that I saw my reflection move toward me before I took a step. And as I moved, he hesitated before mirroring my movements, and then he disappeared as the elevator door opened. I made my way to the roof and opened the door. It was chilly in the city as the sun set. I walked to the only part that made sense to me. I walked toward the part of the building that overlooked the docks and the bay. I was just there. I had been there. I had a life there. As usual, from afar it seemed quiet and devoid of life, like a still photo or painting, and I knew the contrast of the reality of being there. Even now, I would be there looking through the containers with casts. With my recent ordeal, in that dark space, my boss gave me a paid day off and even said I could have two or three as long as I took the time I needed to feel better. The job was there when I was ready to come back. Even Cass acknowledged that, and when I thought it was dispensable, they readily voiced that it was not. I stood taking in the sights, but I quickly became bored with the nothingness that the view had. Yes, there were cars and pollution and people and birds, but I was oblivious to all of that, and when I could stand it no longer, I left the roof. But before I left, I saw a cargo ship depart from the port. It wasn't a full freighter, but it was large enough to be visible. What struck me as being odd was that a lone container set aboard it. I had never seen a cargo freighter arrive or leave the port with only one container on it. It wasn't the most cost-prohibitive way of transporting goods. It was too far away to look at the numbers in the container, but it was rust red, the same color as mine. I wish I could confirm that this obviously could not have been the container, my container, but nevertheless the oddity of it stuck with me as I left the roof. I decided to take the stairs because I didn't want another encounter with my reflection trying to come near me. That is what it felt like. Before I took a step toward the exit, he took a step toward me until he realized that I was watching. When he realized, he stopped moving and I escaped. It was an escape, wasn't it? Had I not left the elevator, what would he have done to me? The question replaced the container in my head and I didn't want to prove this theory one way or the other. I moved slowly back to my apartment door wanting to go anywhere but there. But there was nowhere to go. Can't go to work. Can't go to the docks. I knew I wouldn't sleep, definitely not without a full day at the docks, and so I'd lie in bed with the container, the elevator door, and everything else that has been piling up on me. I know this to be true. A fact, like a premonition that has already happened so that it is hindsight. Can a premonition be hindsight? And conversely, can hindsight be a premonition? A look into something that has already happened, but you know it will also be so in the future? Can time occur simultaneously so the past, present, and future are one and the same? And this fascinated me so that when I went into my apartment, I knew what I was going to do. I gathered the artifacts. 
I referred to them as artifacts because they were proof of my past, and yet they felt like they belonged to me in the moment, and still yet their function would not be known to me until some time in the days to come, maybe years to come. But I knew for certain that they had meaning for me, and that meaning would not reveal itself to me today or tomorrow or the day after that. And so when I entered the apartment, I didn't even bother to close the door. I went into my bedroom and grabbed my backpack, and as quickly and delicately as I could, I placed the artifacts into it. I also grabbed my laptop and some paper, which meant that I also needed pencils that I had to sharpen methodically. I reached for the cup that held the pencils, but I reached too quickly. The cup appeared as a blur, and I grasped at nothing but air, and when I moved my hand, the cup fell over, spilling the pencils onto the floor. I grabbed the cup and placed it back on the table and proceeded to place the pencils back in the cup. One, two, three, four. I then took each pencil and sharpened them and placed them into my backpack. After all, who enjoyed writing with a dull pencil? Maybe it was something we learned in school. We sharpened our pencils. Were we told to sharpen our pencils or was it just an excuse to get out of our seats? I tried so hard in my mind to remember being in school, in third grade. The pencil lid broke, but I can't remember if I did it intentionally or if it was by accident or even if I decided it was just too dull. Was it broken or dulled with time as all things become dull, as my mind has become dull in trying to recollect this memory? And so I raised my hand, and when the teacher gave me permission to leave my seat, I went to the sharpener and inserted the pencil. I would turn the crank, bringing the lead back to life. I took it out and tested the tip of my left finger pad. It was ready. I returned to my seat and finished the test well before anyone else, despite my time spent at the sharpener. When the four were sharpened, I took a step to the door. My first step partially landed on a fifth pencil. The blast radius from the cup falling to the floor was larger than I thought. I bent down to pick this pencil up and turned back to sharpen it, but when I did, another pencil, a sixth pencil, appeared at my feet. Clearly, this was not here before. It would have appeared with the first four. The fifth I could understand. It was beyond my periphery but the six could not have been there all along. I tried to justify that maybe it rolled away, hit the wall, and rolled back, but basic physics couldn't explain it unless there was an earthquake, or the building rested at least at a 45 degree angle, which it didn't. But I had no choice but to bend down and grab the sixth pencil. I sharpened these last two pencils and left the apartment as soon as I could, but not before packing a sandwich and soup in my Eagle lunch bag. Not wanting to spend another second in my apartment, I went to the only safe place I knew, even if ultimately it was determined not to be. I went into the coffee shop, and it was full at 8 o'clock in the evening. Diana and Nadia were both on shift, and it had been a while since I had last seen them. Diana wore a short do with her left side shaved, and Nadia wore gray and purple streaks in her hair shoulder length. I ordered a honey latte and went to find a seat in this crowded cafe. I wondered when the crowd was thin, and I looked around. A few couples sat at high-top tables in bar chairs, it was easy to determine the length of the relationships by the body language. No touching could mean two things. First date, or too many, depending on body distance. Biting of lips, head slightly turned down, quick smiles and laughs, hair touches, and the occasional hands moving back and forth across the legs to draft perspiration on the palms which should be avoided signified something new and exciting. The sexual tension beginning and the uncertainty of reciprocity. The other scenario was unfortunate. It could also mean the tail end or extinguishing of a relationship. Please note extinguish in this sense is not a behavioral one, but an amorous one, signifying conclusion or waning. The lack of touch is inevitably followed by gazes in other directions, particularly when an attractive member of the opposite sex is nearby. 
This signals that the person is looking for another person to join with, primarily in a carnal, primitive way. Ongoing avoidance of eye contact, monosyllabic responses, and typically reaching for something on the table to move in one's hands, typically the drink. This makes avoiding the other person's hand seem natural, but it is anything but. There are other groups here too. There are couples in the prime of their relationship. It could be 10 months or 10 years, or if they're lucky, perhaps soulmates, maybe even 10 lifetimes, but don't hold your breath. It's probably not you, and it's definitely not me. These are the ones that cannot keep their hands off each other. They don't sit opposite each other because it's just too darn far away. So they start off opposite, but throughout their time, they move their stools closer together until they are practically on top of each other. And when they cannot take it anymore, they leave. And they are consumed by their passion so that when they get into the car, they kiss deeply until she straddles him. The others may be groups of friends, hanging out, platonic, studying, a break from studying, a break from life, a much-needed break from life. And there are also the loners, the ones that are okay with being alone, and they come here to prove that they are okay with that, which might mean that deep down inside they are not. Is that me? Can I just be here for a good cup of coffee and be alone in my thoughts, surrounded by all these people? Nadia or Diana brought my coffee to me. I couldn't tell which because I couldn't see the name tag, and I didn't know them by their new hair yet. I looked into my honey latte, and it wasn't the leaf I expected. It was much more ornate. It was a sunflower, and buzzing around the sunflower was a bee. It was a still life, and I couldn't bring myself to drink from its beauty. I wanted to keep it. Forever. I wanted to carefully take this cup and place it into my backpack so that I could place it by my kitchen window. This sunflower needed sun to survive, for it was a heliotrope and moved in the direction of the sun throughout the day. Knowing that, I couldn't drink it, so instead I walked to the counter and ordered something different from Nadia or Diana, the one with the colored streaks. I went to my table and sat back down. The cup looked at me, and I could see the bee buzzing around the sunflower. It moved, and it moved with sound, a rhythmic buzzing sound. It was there, and it was localized in the mug, and yet it couldn't be real. The bee couldn't be moving, and so I couldn't be seeing it move, and I definitely couldn't hear it. That would be illogical, and there has been way too much illogic in my life. I don't want it. I don't want the illogic. Sure, it's romantic. Really it is. To think that all this is happening to me. To me. As if I am that important in the grand scheme of things. But I am not. I am nobody, and I've always been a nobody, and that will never change. I accept that I am a nobody, and honestly, I prefer it that way. I admit, like everyone else would, there was a time when I thought I was something more, someone more, that I was destined for something more than I was, a special, I blame books and movies. What did I expect? That I would evolve, mutate into a higher being, that I was the first of more to come? It made sense. Man was stagnant and needed a push to move forward. Who was willing to take that plunge to the next phase of humanity? Wasn't that me? one who had studied the history of humanity and human behavior. After all, this was my job, and I excelled at it more than any other I knew. And yet, as much as I understood humanity, there was a part of me that felt like I didn't belong to it. I was different, and I would further say that I wasn't accepted among any group, whether I tried or not. I was always on the outside looking in, and that is what made me such a good observer. It was a proclivity that had existed before I had the labels that education had provided me. I saw people, and they made sense to me, and I made sense of their words and their actions. They do and I record. It is non-transactional. I'm not sure which part of the egomania I was in when Nadia or Diana brought another cup to my table. She minimally attempted to remove the current cup, but I swiped my hand over it to fend it off. She understood the gesture and placed the new one alongside the old one. I thought I had told her or the other one that I didn't want the sunflower and the bee or neither one, but when I looked at the new cup, I saw it again, 
a sunflower with a bee hovering. I did tell Nadia or Diana, didn't I? Isn't it always a leaf? I could take both of the cups to my apartment and let the sun decide what to do with them. Two sunflowers and two bees, practically a garden with insects to pollinate. At this point, it was a stalemate. I didn't want to mess up either image, but I needed the caffeine. I returned to Nadia or Diana and ordered a drip. After pouring a splash of half and half and two packages of raw sugar, I returned to my table. I reached into the backpack and took out the laptop and the paper and placed them on the table. I reached into the backpack again and grabbed onto the pencils, careful not to poke myself. And when I placed them onto the table, I counted them. One, two, three, four. I reached back into the backpack for the other two, but what started out as cautious quickly turned frantic. They were not there. My hand freely roamed the depths of the darkness of the backpack, but they were nowhere to be found. With the dim lighting of the cafe, it was no use to see. I had to accept that they were not in there. Then I see the six, the four initially, then the fifth behind me, and then the six that shouldn't have been there but was, and I placed all six pencils into the backpack, but they were no longer there. And so I had to let go of the two. The two were gone, or they never existed, and so I looked at the four and grabbed one. And then I took a piece of paper and placed it before me. I drew a sunflower. I was never the drawer, mind you, so it wasn't perfect, but then again, how hard could it be to draw a sunflower? A large circle with petals that surrounded it and attached to the earth by a thick stalk, and then I drew the bee that was buzzing near it, and then I drew the other sunflower and the other bee as they existed next to me, trapped in the coffee latte prison. I took a sip of the coffee, and the taste sent a shockwave throughout my body. It was hot, and it was intense, and it was bitter, and roasty, and chocolatey, and I felt that my sense of smell and taste returned to me exponentially, and the sounds and smells around came to life in a vibrant overload. And I looked around, and everything came together in twos. The tables, the couples, Diana and Nadia, the cups of latte, with the two sunflowers and two bees. And I drew the boat on the land with the clouds overhead, and those clouds were so swollen that the rains would be torrential and wouldn't stop downpouring for days and weeks and months and years. The boat had to be large enough to accommodate everyone and to hold all the food and water that would be required for such an event, the likes that had never been seen before. And I frantically drew that vessel, and when I was done, I turned a page and drew another one with more details, more clouds that now began to pour. And when that page was full, I grabbed another one, and the vessel was no longer a wooden vessel, but it was a cargo freighter, and it was holding stacks upon stacks of containers. And a manifest needed to go with this cargo freighter. I started writing down the container unit numbers and contents, not knowing if this was from memory or made up. When that sheet was done, I turned it over. The entries needed order, and so I gave it order. I wrote at the top of the page, manifest, but it didn't look right, and so I added the O, manifesto. Pencil after pencil, I continued to write until once what was sharp was dulled from exhaustion, and so I grabbed the next pencil and repeated until that too was dull. When all four pencils were dull, I went back to examine all four and chose the one that was the least dull and continued to use that until I could write no more, and I was done. The numbers and letters frantically filled page after page until the pages were all filled up, 18 pages in all. The manifesto was done, and so I gathered my belongings and left, leaving the two sunflowers and two bees behind, along with Nadia and Diana and all the other chews that were in the cafe. And I left the cafe with a smile on my face, knowing that I had done something, something important, even if I didn't understand that importance right now. 